bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2020. I hope that you and your family are safe and well. We have several breaking news topics this week that we know you'll find interesting and quite newsworthy. It isn't often that this late in August that we have a podcast with several items of breaking news. For starters, we have a major report from the White House Council of Young Advisors on Opportunity Zones. In this report, the White House reveals their estimate of the amount of capital that Opportunity Funds have raised to the end of 2019. You won't want to miss this information, as well as our initial reactions to the report. And if you're involved with the low-income housing tax credit, then you won't want to miss our second breaking news topic. Whether you're an investor, developer, manager, or low-income housing tax credit advisor, a court case coming out of the state of Hawaii may affect you. You most certainly will want to be aware of the case and its outcome to avoid a similar adverse result. We also have some not-quite-so-breaking news about the latest on COVID-19 relief legislation. And since the Republican National Convention is this week, we'll also look at what President Trump has said about taxes in a potential second term. And we'll wrap up by returning to low-income housing tax credits with a discussion of some COVID-19-related issues for low-income housing tax credit property owners and managers. If you're ready, let's get started. Big news dropped Monday when the White House Council of Economic Advisors released a report on the economic impact of the Opportunity Zones incentive. The Council of Economic Advisors is charged with offering the president objective advice on domestic and international economic policy. The headline news from the report? Well, the CEA, as the council is called, estimates that qualified opportunity funds raised $75 billion in private capital by the end of 2019. The report also revealed that Treasury estimates, based on tax filings, that in 2018, about 1,500 opportunity funds were formed. The CEA report includes an estimate that by the end of 2019, over 3,000 opportunity funds had formed and raised capital. Now, the report says that most of that capital would not raising would not have occurred in opportunity zones without the incentive. As an example, the report estimated that private equity investment in businesses in opportunity zones grew 29% compared to similar businesses. By that, the report means businesses in eligible communities that were not designated as opportunity zones. The CA report used two samples to make its capital-raising estimate. First, data from the Securities and Exchange Commission, which tracks qualified opportunity funds as securities. The second source is the Novogratic Qualified Opportunity Fund List. The report, the CEA report, highlights how closely the Novogratic list and the SEC list correlate in tracking the growth of opportunity funds and rate of increase in capital raised. By the way, we do expect to release updated data from the Novogratic opportunity funds list within the next week or so. I will, of course, tweet that information when it's available. But getting back to the CEA report, the report discussed the cost of the OZ incentive to the federal government. The report says that the OZ incentive has a direct effect of 15 cents in foregone federal revenue. The foregone revenues, this 15 cents per dollar of capital raised, stems from three key components. One is the deferment on the capital gains tax on the original gain, the deferral piece. 
the reduction in taxes on the original gains when paid, that's the 10 or 15% reduction in gains based upon the five and seven year hold. And third, the lack of taxes on the gains earned while invested in the Qualified Opportunity Fund. However, the report goes on to observe that the OZ incentive could be revenue neutral. And that is because the economic growth spurred in low-income communities could offset the reduced taxes received on capital gains. Also, in a related announcement, President Donald Trump's campaign said that the president would expand opportunity zones if he is re-elected. We'll talk more about the tax implications of a second Trump term in a little bit. Now, there is a link to the CEA report in today's show notes, and I'll tweet out the link again. I did tweet it out over the weekend for those of you that might have missed it. Also, we'll be talking about this report at the upcoming Novogratic 2020 Opportunity Zones Fall Virtual Conference. That conference is going to be held October 22nd and 23rd. The link to register is in today's show notes, and I'll tweet out that link as well. Now, let's turn to a different tax incentive. Let's discuss our second breaking news item. An important legal decision affecting low-income housing tax credit properties and the qualified contract process. Specifically, the U.S. District Court for Hawaii issued a ruling earlier this month. The ruling addressed the ability of a state allocating agency to terminate extended use agreements under the qualified contract process. Specifically, the court ruled that a termination of the extended use agreement in connection with the qualified contract process was not valid. The court ruled that in this particular case, the extended use agreement would continue to apply to the property. Now, the case involved a low-income housing tax credit property on Maui. As that property had neared the end of its 15-year low-income housing tax credit compliance period, the property owner submitted a qualified contract application to the state agency. Now, when no buyer could be found within the 12 months, the state credit allocating agency terminated the extended use agreement. However, four tenants sued, alleging that the termination violated the recorded extended use agreement. Now, as you know, the qualified contract process begins when a local residential property owner submits a written request to the state agency to find a buyer to purchase the property for a specified price. If a buyer is found, then the property will continue to be operated as low-income housing. That request can be made as early as when the building begins year 15 of the compliance period. However, if the state can't find a qualified buyer within one year, the affordability restrictions are lifted. Now, in this particular case, at the time the original regulatory agreement was signed, the owner of the Maui property agreed to keep the property affordable for 50-plus years. However, As the property neared the end of the initial 15-year compliance period, the owner sought to terminate the extended use period through the qualified contract process. The state agreed that the owner was eligible and accepted the request. A year later, because a new owner could not be found, the state released the owner from the affordability restrictions. That was effective August 2019. That's when the resident sued. Ultimately, the court ruled that the qualified contract process should never have been available to the property owner. The court noted that the recorded extended use agreement did not include a reference to the qualified contract exception as a means of terminating the agreement. Now, the court noted that a subclause in Section 42 allows allocating agencies to require more stringent affordability requirements be applied to properties. 
and the more stringent affordability requirements effectively permit the state to disallow property owners from ever having the right to pursue the qualified contract process. The court went on to note that there were several mechanisms for terminating the extended use agreement, such as foreclosure, that were mentioned in the specific extended use agreement that was recorded, but the qualified contract process was not mentioned in the agreement. The district court concluded that because the extended use agreement did not include any mention of the ability to terminate the affordability restrictions by use of the qualified contract process, that the owner had effectively waived any right to such a termination. Now, while the Hawaii case had specific issues that may not be at play everywhere, it is a good reminder that a qualified contract exit to the compliance period isn't always available. It's also a reminder that simply because the allocating agency terminates the agreement doesn't mean that tenants cannot sue and potentially overturn the termination of an extended use agreement. Now, if you're coming up on year 15 or you're considering a qualified contract exit, now is a good time to make sure the property is eligible. Please contact my partner, Nicola Pinoli, in our Portland, Oregon office for any further assistance. Now, let's turn to the latest news on federal COVID-19 relief legislation. What little news there is, of course. The past several weeks have involved a lot of discussions in the introduction of a Senate bill, but there's been no action on such legislation. And it's not clear if this week is going to be any different. With all that said, let's review where we are. In May, House Democrats passed a bill that included $3.4 trillion in aid. That was the HEROES Act. Senate Republicans then released their $1 trillion package in July. The Senate bill is called the HEALS Act, which hasn't passed the Senate yet. So you basically have heroes versus heels. Negotiations have been at a standstill since July. Now, during that time, the extra $600 per week in unemployment insurance expired, as did the National Eviction Moratorium. Now, some of the key issues that are still in dispute is the overall price tag, the higher heroes number or the lower heels number or somewhere in between, the extra amount of unemployment insurance, as well as how much aid goes to state and local governments. Now, last week, Senate Republicans did start circulating a discussion draft of a so-called skinny relief bill. Now, this bill has not been introduced, but what was circulated was a draft of potential legislation to see how Republican senators feel about it basically surveying the Republican caucus in the Senate. The the bill may still be introduced. It's also possible that provisions of the legislation could be added to a continuing resolution to keep government funded past September 30th. Now, the skinny relief bill discussion draft does not include any of the tax provisions that we've discussed over the past few months, such as a minimum 4% local zinc tax credit rate, an extension of the new market tax credit, and other provisions. The Republican skinny relief bill, though, does include an extra $300 in weekly unemployment insurance, $100 billion for education, and $10 billion for the United States Postal Service. I should also note that a few days ago on Saturday, the House approved legislation to give the Postal Service an additional $25 billion in funding. So that's another item to negotiate with the Republicans. We will keep an eye on this as negotiations continue, and we'll update when there's movement. Please follow me on Twitter for any breaking news. 
With that, we can now turn to something we know is happening this week. Last week, Democrats held their national convention and nominated Joe Biden as their presidential candidate. And we discussed Biden's tax plan last week. And we mentioned Trump's proposal for Opportunity Zones earlier in the podcast. Well, the Republican National Convention began on Monday, yesterday, and continues through this Thursday. So let's take a brief look at the tax plans for President Trump, who will accept the nomination by his party on Thursday night. Now, as an incumbent, Trump does not have a major list of tax policies. Four years ago, of course, he campaigned with a major focus on tax cuts. And at the end of his first year in office, Republicans passed legislation doing that, legislation that created Opportunity Zones This time, things are different. Now, Trump has talked occasionally since 2017 about a second tax reform bill, but he's provided few concrete details. The individual provisions of the 2017 tax bill, I should note, expire in 2026. And Trump has pledged to make those provisions permanent as part of his second-term agenda. There are a couple of other items that he's discussed frequently in recent weeks. One has been part of his discussion of COVID-19 relief legislation, cutting payroll taxes. And Trump did issue an executive order earlier this month to defer payroll taxes. Payroll taxes, of course, pay for Social Security and Medicare. And Trump has suggested that he would seek a permanent repeal of payroll taxes if he wins a second term. Although his press secretary said that Trump was only talking about forgiving the payroll taxes he deferred. However, Trump has said multiple times that he wants to end the payroll tax. Now, the other tax item that Trump has discussed is an overall reduction in the capital gains tax rate to 15%. As of now, the capital gains tax is 15% for married taxpayers who earn $80,000 to $496,000. And the top capital gains tax rate is 23.8% for taxpayers who earn more than that amount. In other words, those married taxpayers making about $500,000 a year or more. That rate is 20% plus the 3.8% addition in general. And Trump has said that he wants to cut the overall rate to 15%. Trump has suggested he may issue an executive order to cut the capital gains tax rate, but many Democrats think that oversteps the authority of the president. And in some ways, this may be a moot point. Trump trails Biden in the polls, and even if Trump wins in November, he would need congressional support to pass tax legislation. The House of Representatives is expected to remain controlled by Democrats. And the Senate is considered at best a toss-up for Republicans, which means it would be difficult for Trump to get major tax legislation through Congress. He really would need control of both the House and the Senate. Now, Trump has previously said he will release a middle-income tax cut proposal, but he hasn't done so yet. We will keep watching for a Trump second-term agenda, and we'll report on it if a plan is released. Now, as I mentioned last week, my column in the September issue of the Novograd Journal Tax Credits addresses Biden's tax-related proposals and how the Senate would look under Democrat control. We're also working on a special report on the potential effects of a Democratic sweep of the House, Senate, and Presidency in November. This special report will include a discussion of where tax legislation would fall in Democratic priorities, the likelihood of affordable housing and community development legislation, passing, becoming law, how tax legislation could affect equity pricing for existing tax incentives, as well as what a Biden administration might do with government appropriations and regulatory issues. Now, that special report will be released in September. 
the report's going to be free to clients and a small charge for everyone else. We'll talk more about this special report as it gets nearer to release. There's a link to subscribe to the Novak Journal of Tax Credits in today's show notes, so please check it out. So let's now talk about low-income housing tax credit property compliance. You may remember the IRS released a notice 2020-53 in July. This notice provides relief for low-income housing tax credit property owners, managers, and tenants affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. So here's a summary of the notice. First, the notice provides extensions for several critical deadlines, including the 10% test deadline, the 24-month rehabilitation expenditure period, and others. Second, Notice 2020-53 waived tenant income recertifications on mixed income projects. The notice did not, though, waive initial tenant income certifications. Third, the notice clarified that closing a common area or amenity due to the COVID-19 pandemic does not cause a reduction in eligible basis. And fourth, the notice clarified that medical personnel or other essential workers qualify as displaced persons and the Revenue Procedure 2014-49 and 2014-50. Now, while Notice 2020-53 provided relief in these four areas, there were property compliance areas in which Notice provided little to no relief. My colleague, Stephanie Nocken, wrote an article for the September issue of the Novograd Journal of Tax Credits. In this article, Stephanie highlights property compliance guidance that is still needed for local housing tax credit property owners and managers. Now, specifically, guidance that was not included in the notice includes whether or not annual income recertification waivers also waive annual student status verifications. Also not included, whether certain questions in the annual owner certification are waived, as well as whether or not additional extensions are allowed for non-compliance correction periods. Now, for starters, Novogratic recommends that you continue practicing safe and diligent property compliance procedures using the relief and the notice as necessary. For example, it's a good idea to continue income recertifications. That is, if circumstances permit. If recertifications are not possible due to COVID-19, use the relief and the notice. Please also note that Notice 2020-53 waived income recertifications for mixed income properties. That said, state agencies may still require income recertifications. Contact your state agency if you need relief or guidance for your annual income recertifications. Along with income recertifications, it's also a good idea to get full-time student status verifications. Even if you're not doing annual income recertifications, you need to verify full-time student status for tenants in order to avoid noncompliance for units entirely occupied by full-time students. Also, not completing annual income recertifications can make it difficult for owners to do annual owner certifications. Without income certifications, owners cannot verify such things as whether the property meets the applicable minimum set-aside, that there has been no change in the applicable fraction of a building, that annual income certification was performed for each low-income tenant, and if a tenant became over-income and the next available unit rule was followed. Lastly, 2020-53 did not provide specific guidance or relief for the non-compliance correction period. Now, when an allocating agency identifies non-compliance, the owner typically has a 90-day correction period. That period can be extended up to six months with good cause. However, 
depending on the timing of noncompliance and the six-month correction period, it could be necessary for another extension to correct noncompliance. Now, that's especially true for owners and managers who face challenges adjusting to COVID-19, both at their properties and at their management companies. Those difficulties are amplified by employees working more remotely and for certain tenant populations, such as seniors. Now, we are hopeful that the IRS will release more specific guidance as the pandemic continues and as property owners experience more complications. Now, again, we at Novogratic recommend diligent property compliance procedures to the greatest extent possible. Also, reach out to your state agency if you're a property owner seeking relief from income recertifications or other property compliance procedures due to COVID-19-related complications. And if you need more help with income or owner certifications, Novogratic is here to help. We have experts in every state who are ready to help you. And if you'd like to read Stephanie Nockin's article in the September issue, make sure you're subscribed to the journal. As I said earlier, there's a link to subscribe in today's show notes. Well, that brings me at the end of this week's report. Before I close, though, I want you to know we've released Novogratic 2020 Low-Income Task Credit Property Management Handbook. This is an essential resource. There's more than 750 pages of useful information and includes the most up-to-date information for low-income housing tax credit property compliance. This year's edition of the handbook includes new information on the COVID-19 pandemic, on calculating income limits for average income units, and minimum compliance monitoring requirements. There are also many other updated sections. I'll provide a link to order the handbook in today's show notes and tweet it out as well. That's it for now. I'm Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived podcasts are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. You can find related links referenced in this podcast in our show notes at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.